Today we are finishing Ephesians chapter 5 and we're looking at God's design for marriage. And then next week, the Sunday following Kids Week, we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 6 looking at God's design for parenting, which will be a great way to invite parents back the following Sunday after Kids Week, which is next week. And then we only have two more weeks in Ephesians um, looking at God's design for work, and then we're going to land the plane and finishing our five-month trek through Ephesians with Paul's final charge at the end of chapter 6. And then uh, this summer, we're going to spend eight weeks going through the Psalms, seeing and inspecting just the roller coaster that is life. Uh, We're going to spend eight weeks going through the highs and lows of life and seeing how Jesus meets us in both the peaks and also the pits of life. We're going to see how God has given us the Psalms as a tool to both articulate our emotions and also as a tool for prayer. And so we're going to preach through the Psalms in order to also teach us how to pray the Psalms. But that's coming up in a few weeks. But this week we're talking about the beauty of marriage, seeing God's design for marriage. And the Bible describes marriage as between one man and one woman uh, that, got, that have come under a covenant commitment with each other to be united as one. And this is God's only design for marriage. And there are no, there are no other options. And, and I know our culture is at odds with this. And how we handle this needs to be done with both truth and grace. And the way in which we talk about this can both totally push away people from finding Jesus and the love of God displayed at the cross, or on the other side, if we just ignore it and we don't address it and don't teach God's design, we're also being unloving and not truthful. And so at the end of the day, just like every other desire under the sun, we have to decide who's in charge. Like, is Jesus Lord of our life, or or, or uh, or am I Lord of my life? And, and we, do we get to decide what's right and true based off of how we feel, or does God and his word decide what is right and true? And this the entire Christian life is about coming to God through Jesus and then conforming our life to his ways and his design. And listen, the order of this is so important. We don't first conform our life to his ways so we can then come to God. No, no, we come to Jesus just as we are through giving our life to Jesus Christ. And then while we're there, seeing Jesus' beauty and love, we then begin to be transformed into God's image, which also includes God's design for marriage. And again, this is between one man and one woman and a lifelong covenant commitment to each other. This is the basic biblical foundation that we start with today, that we must start with. But then, as we get into God's Word, we'll see so much more of the beauty that is marriage. We're going to see what a spirit-filled marriage gives to the world, ultimately seeing as our main idea today that healthy marriages display the gospel to the world. And as we think about this idea of marriage being a picture of the gospel to the world, you know, some of you may know this, some of you, many of you may not actually, but my wife Kelly is a very talented artist. She's painted art and sold it um, all over uh, the country, and so she's pretty good at it. But the type of art that she paints are what artists call impressions, which means she paints a picture of something and it's a representation of that something, but it's not an exact replica. For example, I went to South Asia about six years ago and while I was there, she painted a picture of a cow. Because apparently cow paintings were a popular trend at this time in the art world that I had absolutely no clue about. 
But as soon as I saw the painting, the day I got home from my trip, I fell in love with it, not because I love cows or because of any art trends, but I loved it for several other reasons. In fact, it's hanging on my wall uh, right now next to my desk, and so I see it every single day. And when I look at the painting, when you look at the painting, you look at it and think, wow, that's a cool-looking cow. It's got the large cow body, it's got the cow face, the nose, the ears, the mouth, but you also look at it and think, uh, that's a cow, but it's not a perfect picture of a cow because the cow is outlined in dark blue with all different shades of blue and hints of pink and white, and that's not the color of a cow. And yes, it's a picture of a cow, but it's more of a representation of a cow. It's an impression of a cow. And the reason I love this painting so much is because this painting has taken on so much more meaning than it just being a cow. In fact, this painting reminds me of our call to plant New City Church. And it also reminds me of God's heart for the nations. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, that sounds wonderful, but how in the world did you get to that from a picture of a cow? Like, help me connect the dots here. And well, it's because she painted this painting while I was on the same trip where I've told the same story several times of a church being birthed in a remote village in three days on a short-term trip. And while I was on that trip where God made it clear that we were to plant a church that would send people all over the world as a side story of that exact same trip that I don't think I've ever told was that while on that same trip, I saw a ton of cows in the city streets and in the villages and on the countryside that were everywhere. But this was my third time, so this was nothing new. Those cows were also there the first two trips. But on this trip specifically, all week long, as I was seeing these cows, I was thinking of the book of Jonah that we're going to preach this fall, that I had just preached a couple months prior to this trip that, strangely enough, had a head, has a head-scratching ending about cows, which then reminded me of Psalm 50 where, God, where King David said, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And so all week long, I was seeing these cows thinking, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which then also reminded me of the promise that God owns everything and that when God calls and sends, God also provides and equips. God's over all of it, which gave me a lot of peace in thinking about the daunting task of church planting. And so all that to say, this painting of a dark blue colorful cow that I see every day is a reminder and a picture of something far more than just a simple cow. It's a picture of a call and a promise. It's a picture that reminds me daily of God's sovereignty and care. And I bring this up today because this is exactly what Paul is showing us with marriage. It's a picture of something far more than just a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant commitment, which, yes, that's exactly what it is, but it's also far more than that. In fact, Paul will show us today in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a picture to the world displaying the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of unconditional love and grace. And no, marriage is not the gospel. And no, our marriages are not a perfect picture of the gospel because, yes, we still live in a broken world and we don't portray, perfectly portray Jesus always, but yet maybe we could say healthy marriages are like an impressionistic painting, so to speak, that displays the gospel to the world. And church, what an honor and privilege this is. What a weight and task that we hold to show the world a picture of divine love. And so when the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts at the point of conversion, he begins to then reshape us and renew us, which then, as we've seen over the past few weeks, this renewal and transformation begins to reshape how we live, which again also includes our marriages. And unfortunately, I don't, have, I don't think I have to do a lot of convincing to show that our marriages need renewal 
and help. Because the sad fact that is widely known is that half of marriages end in divorce, divorce which is just gut-wrenching. But then I saw this week from Forbes that, that that statistic is true for all first marriages. Well, second marriages is two out of three end in divorce. Third marriages is three out of four. You know, and this is heart-wrenching. And the data also shows that because of this, more and more people are waiting longer to get married than previous generations, showing us that I think we can all agree that uh, marriage in our culture is not seen in the best light. There's a struggle here. Like, I think it's fair to say that the foundation for marriage is under a major crisis. It's somewhat crumbling. Or on the flip side, as we'll see today, God's design for a healthy marriage, as Paul shows us, it's an incredibly beautiful picture. It's an honor. It's a privilege. It points the world to Jesus. Marriage is one of the highest callings and commitments and blessings that we can enter into as a follower of Jesus. And because of that, we're praying for a bunch of healthy, God-honoring new city marriages. And I also want to say, along with that, if you're not married today— let today be a reminder of something that is good and is healthy and to pray for, uh, for yourself and for those around you. And just think about the seriousness of marriage. I mean, let today be a way to think about what you're looking for in the future while also remembering that marriage is not ultimate. Like marriage does not complete anybody. No, it does not elevate anybody. I mean, just like we, just like we can say marriage is a beautiful gift, gift we can also say so is singleness. In fact, the man who wrote our passage today, he was a single man. And he also wrote on the gift of singleness elsewhere. And do you know who else was single? Jesus. He, he never had a wife while on earth. But both singleness and marriage, they're both gifts from God in their own distinct light. But today, because of our passage in Ephesians, we're highlighting the gift of marriage. And so that said, let's go ahead and read our passage today. So look starting in chapter 5, verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is one of those texts that you'll hear often at a wedding. And it's also a text that has had multiple really good books written on it, which tells us that today we're just barely scratching the surface on the topic of marriage. You know, marriage, it's a lifelong endeavor where uh, we never stop learning and growing. But in our text, we see a charge first to the wife and then also to the husband. And then in verse 32, Paul says, the mystery of marriage, it refers to Christ and the church. And again, that's the picture marriage paints for us. It displays the gospel to the world. 
And the gospel, very simply put, is our good news where God sent Jesus down to earth to rescue his people, which includes you and me. We were rescued from the grip of sin's power. And yes, the presence of sin, we know that it's still active today. It's still all around us. But God sent Jesus to free us from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. Like God sent Jesus to also free us from the power of sin, which means we can be freed from being enslaved by sin here on earth. And the reason, the reason marriage displays the, this good news is because in God sending Jesus, Jesus showed us a divine and immaculate love by sacrificing his own life at the cross that we, the church, could then be given a new life so that we can walk in freedom. And so Jesus at the cross where he died, it was a picture of grace and kindness. Like he gave us what we did not deserve. New City, there's, there was no reason Jesus should have died other than for his love for us, which is what a healthy, God-honoring marriage points us to. Like it's a daily picture of sacrificial love and grace that loves unconditionally in the face of sin. You know, there, there are not many certainties that we can give uh, about every marriage that has ever existed, but one of the ones we can be most confident about is that every marriage— that has ever existed has been affected by sin. Arguments happen. Pride and frustrations get in the way. I mean, just day one, in every marriage counseling session I've ever held, either married or engaged, I always start with basically with two basic truths. Number one, both of you have sin in your heart, and you both, unfortunately, will continue to sin, but hopefully just less over time. And so because of that, number two You both also are in desperate need for Jesus and his grace. And so in your marriage, grace and forgiveness, it's a must. Which means in marriage, God has designed both the husband and the wife to be a reminder and a picture of Jesus to each other. Again, marriage displays the gospel to the world, but even more than that, God designed it and created it to be a reminder of the gospel to each other. And so today, we're going to look at this text that addresses both the wife and the husband. And as we look at this, we're going to see a few specific aspects of the gospel that are put on display through healthy, spirit-filled relationships. And I'm going to give you those three points as we go today. But the reason I say spirit-filled is because what we're going to see today is the ideal picture of marriage. Like this is what our marriages should like, look like if we're both fully walking in the Spirit. But as we know, I mean, just living in this life on this side of heaven where sin and uh, the enemy are still present, unfortunately at times we don't always walk in the Spirit. And maybe some of you realize this, uh, trying to make it here on time. But I also say this because of what Paul wrote directly before this passage. And as we saw last week, Paul ended, he ended that long list of do's and don'ts. And he said, but be filled with the Spirit in verse 18, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And then showing us in verse 19 to 20 that being filled with the Spirit leads us to a life of worship and thankfulness and relationships that submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I bring this up today because at the end of verse 21, Paul, Paul talks about generic mutual submission in relationships that happen through honoring Christ. Which means when we're filled with the Spirit, walking in humility, there is a mutual submission and deferring that happens with one another. And this is a beautiful thing. Like when, just in, in normal everyday relationships, when we submit to one another in our relationships and consider others before ourselves, we're modeling Jesus. We're living inside of God's design. 
And listen, all relationships that honor the Lord, there is a mutual deferring and honoring and considering and serving to one another in so many ways. Our text today, as well as in the weeks to come, it's a continuation of the previous verses that show a life lived in the Spirit. It's a, it's a picture of a life that is yielded to the Spirit of God. And this is very important, especially as we look at more of the specifics for, for wives and husbands. Because again, if we're not walking in the Spirit, we're walking in the flesh. Which is where pride and aggression, and this is where irritation in relationships, uh, in relationships can live and dwell. And this is where we see marriages begin to really struggle and fall apart. And so let's go back through our text again, looking at verses 22 to 24, where Paul addresses the wife more directly, and we're going to get to our first point after this. Paul says, again, we re- it reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I know that our our culture really struggles with these verses specifically because it talks about submission. And it seems to make wives seem as if they're not equal with their husbands, maybe thinking it seems like misogynistic or chauvinistic or antiquated. And what I want to show us today is that this is meant to be more of a mutual honoring towards one another. Like this is, like it's, it's, it's not like a controlling, demanding, and the husband saying, I'm in charge, now you listen to me. No, what Paul is trying to articulate is a truly beautiful thing. In fact, it's intended to be a part of the picture uh, of, that points us to the gospel, showing us, number one, the gospel displayed through submission. And again, when the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands, it doesn't mean the husband bosses you around and you do whatever he says as if you are his slave. No, like th- th- that's like absolutely not. That's a gross misrepresentation of submission, and that is not a spirit-filled marriage, and it does not display the gospel. Now, any picture of marriage that looks like the husband sitting in his lazy boy after a hard day's work watching the game while he expects his wife to serve him dinner and clean up and put the kids to bed while he's totally disengaged, that is not from the Lord. And we must get that idea out of our heads. Because yes, Paul does say, wives, submit to your husbands. But what we must understand with this is that this is said with the understanding that the husband is also to be laying down his life for his wife. Like these ideas can't be separated or isolated from each other. If the gospel is displayed through submission, like I'm going to show us today, if the husband isn't also laying down his life for his wife, then that would be like trying to display the gospel without Jesus dying on the cross, which we know is not the gospel. No, Jesus laid down his life and died on the cross, and then as a response, we, the church, then follow Jesus and we submit to Jesus' leadership. So yes, husbands, you have a weighty task in being a picture of Jesus to the world, and we'll get to that. But wives, you also have a weighty task through submitting to your husband and following his leadership. Because you're showing the world, your family, your kids, all those around you, what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so wives, when you're joyfully and willingly submitting to your husband's leadership, as Paul says, you're showing a picture of what it looks like to joyfully and willingly follow and submit to Jesus. That's what Paul said in verse 24. He said, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so wives, what a weighty task. But also, what an honor this is. 
to show the world what it looks like to joyfully follow Jesus through following your husband's lead. And believe me, I know submitting to Jesus, who is perfect and is also God, like that's already challenging at times. And so submitting to your husband, who is far from perfect and does not always perfectly portray Jesus, will also be incredibly difficult. Like, I get it. This is the ideal, perfect marriage where both the husband and the wife are fully walking in the Spirit. And just like this will be difficult for the wife and will require the wife to be walking in the Spirit, displaying humility and grace and patience and love, just wait until we get to see what the husband is called to do. But the point Paul is making here is that this is the picture that wives display through following their husband's lead. And again, this is not intended to suppress the wife. And it's, but we're by any means to control the wife under a domineering tyrant or dictator. No, the point, is, uh, it, the point in this is for both the husband and the wife to both mutually display honor and respect and love towards one another. And it also does not mean that the husband and wife are not equal, as if the husband has a higher rank than the wife. No, that's also not the picture. The husband and wife are both equal in value. They are both equal in the eyes of the Lord. They are just different roles in God's design for marriage. You know, it's often been illustrated with the idea of just two people dancing. You know, when one person is called to lead and initiate in a dance, and the other person follows their lead. And as they move across the dance floor, the resulting picture is a beautiful dance. And so in God's design for marriage, the husband is called to lead and protect and serve and lay down his life. And the wife is called to follow his lead and to support and to encourage and to build up. And again, I want to remind us that this is the ideal picture and goal for our marriages when both the husband and the wife are walking in the spirit. And we need to ask, what is the wife to do when the husband is not honoring the Lord and not walking in the Spirit. Well, first I want to say, in an abusive situation, we need to ask, you need to seek outside help and possibly be separated from one another for a time if you're being harmed. Like we need to use much wisdom and counsel in these sensitive situations, but then also if your husband is seeking to lead you to sin or into sin, no, you do not follow his lead. If he is seeking to lead you to sin, you always choose to follow Christ before you follow your husband. Paul said, submit to your husband as to the Lord. And so submitting to Jesus always comes first, which means fleeing from sin, running from sin. But in those situations where he's not overtly leading you to sin, but he himself is clearly not displaying Jesus, then in those situations you have the opportunity to show him the love and grace of Jesus. Through displaying love and patience and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. And in doing that, God can use your display of love to point your husband back to Jesus. You know, there's so much more we could say here. And we'll give practical examples in a minute. But next, let's move to the husband. Look back at verses 25 to 33. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, 
Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the wife displays the gospel through following the husband's lead and submitting to his leadership. Then we see from the husband a picture of number two, the gospel displayed through loving sacrifice. Again, these ideas cannot be separated. Again, if Jesus did not die on the cross and give up his life for the church, then we, he wasn't the Savior and the church couldn't follow him. Yes, the wife is called to submit to the husband, but it follows the leadership of the husband first showing sacrificial love. Paul said in Ephesians 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Which, what did Jesus do for the church? Jesus died and he sacrificed his life for the church. Jesus died for us. He died for you and for me. Jesus took on the pain of the cross in sacrificial love so that we, the church, could find full life. Like Jesus didn't die for his own gain only, but he died also for our gain. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus sacrificed his place in heaven. Jesus left the comfort of heaven. He gave up his heavenly seat to be born as a baby in the coldness of this world to then grow up, live, and die on the cross, sacrificing his life so that you and me could have our sin forgiven. Again, Jesus died so that we could live. This is our good news. This is the gospel that our marriages point to, which means husbands, again, Our job is to sacrifice our entire lives so that our wives can experience the fullness of life. God calls the husbands to sacrifice so that their wives can flourish. That's what Jesus, our servant king, did for us. That's how Jesus modeled his leadership. Yes, we're called to lead, but the calling of our leadership is a humble, servant, sacrificing type of leadership that Jesus modeled and not a domineering dictator or a demanding tyrant that does not listen and love or seriously consider his people. And do you know what happens when we husbands follow Jesus and live out of a humble servant, sacrificing type of life for our wives? Look what Paul says to why Jesus did this. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So Jesus gave up his life for you and me that we would be cleansed and made pure. Jesus gave up his life at the cross for you and for me so that we would be presented in splendor, without spot or wrinkle and without blemish. And church, this is a gift to us. It leads us to worship and delight in the Lord. Jesus sacrificed his life for our holiness and for our splendor and for our transformation. And husbands, this is what we're called to do with our wives. We lead by living as living sacrifices in our marriages and in return it shows that our wives are beautiful and precious and splendor. And it leads them to delight and flourish in following our lead. And submission then becomes a delight and not a begrudging duty. Yes, submission for the wife takes a level of humility and self-sacrifice and denying of herself. But we have to agree that it would be a lot easier if the husband lived out his God-given roles as a servant leader and not domineering and dismissive, but kind and honoring. Just like the wife needs to walk in humility and deny herself to submit to the husband, the husband has to do the exact same thing to lead as a servant leader, to lead through loving sacrifice. 
And what is so beautiful about both parties, both the husband and the wife are both being marked by self-sacrifice and sacrificial service and not expecting to be served. Do you know what happens when both the husband, like this, like both the husband and the wife are transformed when this happens? Husbands, when you serve, when we serve our wives and expect nothing in return, it shows them in real everyday life, it shows them a picture of Jesus. And wives, the same is true for you also. God made marriage to be a means to our transformation and holiness. God made our marriage to show us our need for Jesus and to give us a place to daily live out the overflow of life that Jesus wants to give us, showing us, number three, the gospel displayed through marriage. When the husband lays down his life and his desire and his preferences and comfort uh, every day for his wife, he's showing her and those around him what Jesus did when he went to the cross. And the wife then also lovingly submits to his servant sacrificial leadership. She's showing the world what it looks like to follow Jesus for the bride of the church to follow the groom of Jesus. This is what God created marriage for. This is how God designed husbands to lead. He designed us husbands to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice and for their wives in return to follow her husband as he follows Jesus. Now, what I know is that again, this is the ideal marriage and just maybe it can sound way better in theory than what happens in real life. And so I wanna try to give an idea of what submission for the wife and loving sacrifice for the husband looks like in marriage. And at the most practical level, in most instances, what this really boils down to in the day-to-day life is simply decision-making. And in all honesty, there should be very few decisions that are made where the husband is using this God-given role to make the final decision, like maybe 2% of them. Maybe because it's not, uh, because again, it's not the husband is the boss and what he says goes. Now, in a biblical marriage, there is to be mutual honoring and love and respect while remembering the husband is to lay down his life for his wife which should then look like the wife regularly getting what she desires if the husband is truly laying down his desires for hers and so yes the husband is called to lead and the wife is called to follow while also remembering there is a mutual honoring where the wife submits to the husband and the husband lays down his life for the wife which then means a vast majority of decisions are made through a consensus decision-making process where we're exercising what Paul says in verse 21 mutually submitting to one another and with this this shows the husband and wife becoming one in unity and it's exercising humility and sacrificial love this is where marriages are unified like we kind of like what it looks like is we communicate back and forth we listen and we hear all sides there's a mutual give and take and then together as a unified couple you make a decision together Again, this is how about 98 to 99% of our decisions in marriage should be made. Where we live, where we eat, what we buy, how we spend our money, our time, our hobbies, how to serve. Again, most of the daily, everyday decisions should show unity and a mutual deferring and honoring and love towards one another. Like there is a laying down our life and preferences for the other person with both parties. And in all honesty, the healthier the marriage, the more decisions like this that are made. Because healthy leadership looks like finding consensus and mutual agreement with all parties and it's done with honor and respect. So then we need to ask, well, if that's the case, then how and when should we ask, does the husband lead in this? 
Like, when should the husband step in and use this type of headship decision-making that we see from our text? And basically, when there's a tie, and when no decision is a decision, and when a decision needs to be made and consensus is not found. And in this, we must remember, it does not throw honor and preferences and humility out the window where the husband just gets whatever he wants. No. Biblical leadership and decision-making, where the wife then submits to her husband out of love and respect, it's done in humility and kindness with both parties and with a full understanding of the call for the husband to lay down his life for his wife. And then as the leader that God has made the husband to be, laying down his life for his wife, he then takes on the responsibility and the liability to make a decision with everyone's best interest in mind. Which means if the decision goes sour, the buck stops with the husband. And so you need to ask, what does submission look like in your own marriage? Like, what does it look like in the day-to-day life? Because you know what? I can't answer that question for you. I can simply give you the principles uh, that we see in the text, in the Bible, and then you both have to wrestle with this and pray through this and discuss this together. This is what biblical marriage looks like. And when it's done well, it points people to the beauty of Jesus. But then what happens? Well, Sin enters the picture. (laughs) Sin comes creeping in, leading the husband to lead, not out of humble sacrificial service, but out of prideful entitlement or as demanding and domineering and puffs off his chest for selfish gain. And and this grieves the Lord. That's not the gospel. And what often happens is that it can easily lead the wife to rebel or not desire in any way to follow the lead of her husband. Like this is what happens when sin comes in. Just as it grieves the Lord when husbands don't display sacrificial love, it also grieves the Lord when the wife refuses to follow the husband out of prideful rebellion. And I get it. Both the husband and the wife are called to such a high standard. Both are called to deny themselves. And the only way this is possible is if both are walking in the Spirit yielded to the Lord. And listen, God's desire for our marriage is not to be two separate people fighting against each other, but rather as one flesh, as one body that loves and cares for each other, unified as one. Look again at what Paul says in verses 28 to 31. He says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what I want to point out here is that Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. He says we don't hate our own bodies. No, we seek to nourish and cherish our own bodies. He said a man leaves his father and mother and then holds fast to his wife to then show that these two people have become one unified person. They become one flesh. And yes, the husbands are to love their wives, and both parties are to mutually love the other person. But what Paul is saying here is that when we do this, it doesn't just benefit the other person, but it also is a benefit to us. A relationship that is mutually loving and sacrificing and are, are, are both denying themselves for the honor of the other person, it is a beautiful gift. When we're living unified as one, it's a blessing to everyone, and we just enjoy the relationship way more. We're on the flip side when one or both parties are, uh, see, are, are not seeking to honor the Lord uh, or to serve, but rather just seeking to, to take and to be served and living as two separate people, not unified, unified resentment and bitterness and disharmony. It's just knocking at the door. And so in a lot of ways, 
You know, I think we could compare this similar, somewhat similar to running. And maybe you're like, this just took a hard left turn, okay? But hang with me. And I'm not an avid, avid runner, okay? But I do run from time to time. And just a fun fact, uh, what studies have shown, interestingly enough, are that runners as a whole are some of the happiest people on the planet. And from my experience with running, especially early on when I first started running cross country in high school, I would have without a doubt told you that runners are just plain crazy, like the silliest sport on the whole planet. Like there was absolutely nothing that caused any happiness when I ran. In fact, I was miserable all the time. Like every day after practice, I just wanted to go and throw up. And I would go and just lay down the rest of the night. I only did it because my friends did it. And they always talked about how much better they felt after they ran. But me, I absolutely was not having this exact same experience. But after about six weeks in, after being tortured five days a week and just hating my life, just totally miserable, my coach started talking to me about hydration and diet and the things I was eating throughout the week. And then as I started to work on those things and I kept running, the more that I ran, the easier it got. And then one day after I finished running, I finally experienced it. You know, like I finally experienced what runners call the runner's high. <laughs> it was true. After I ran, I did feel happier. I felt better. And those are like, like the natural endorphins. They came shooting through my body. And what is just generally true, when we watch our diet and exercise, our bodies, they just feel better. Our emotions are more stable. We sleep better. We have more energy. Just overall feel better. But when we put in the hard work and sacrifice, we in turn are helping our minds and bodies operate the way they were created to operate. And this is the point I want to make here. The exact same thing is true with our marriages. Y'all, if we don't intentionally work on our marriages, and in turn, we take in a diet of selfish gain and unhealthy expectations and resentment and pride, our marriages won't operate the way they're supposed to operate. We're on the flip side. When we do what God calls us to do and we work on our marriages the way God tells us to work on it by both parties showing sacrificial love and expecting nothing in return. When we do this day after day and week after week, y'all, the relationship is going to be healthier and more enjoyable and more God-honoring. You see, God designed our marriages to be a major part of our transformation Our marriages point to the sacrificial love of Jesus and they also can make us more like Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, we hand him our entire life. And this also includes our marriage. And because of that, we better believe the enemy will do whatever he can to get in the middle of our marriages and whisper lies and to keep us from mutual submission and self-sacrifice in our relationships and bitterness and resentment can grow. And so we must know the enemy is out to destroy our marriages. And why? Because our healthy God-honoring marriages, they point to Jesus. And so, of course, we're going to have to work to display grace and forgiveness and walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. In New City, one of the best gifts and tools that we have in our marriages is grace. When we are able to regularly extend grace, it puts the gospel on display and it empowers and emboldens our spouse to get back up and to keep living for Jesus. Because, believe me, I know, I wish I was a Spirit-filled husband all the time to Kelly. I, I wish I could say that that was the case, but guess what? It's not. 
Because listen, a marriage that points to Jesus in the gospel is not a marriage free from sin. No, it's a marriage that is full of grace and forgiveness. It's a marriage that says, I know I've been sinned against, but I'm going to forgive you today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. And again, please hear me. I know abuse and dangerous situations happen and we must use wisdom and get people around us. Like we can't keep ourselves in dangers. But in everyday, day-to-day life, when we're living with a husband or wife, they're going to wrong us, and they're going to disappoint us, and they're going to let us down. And in those moments, we must be able to say, you've wronged me, but I'm going to choose to love you anyways. And why? Because that's what Jesus has done for me. Day after day after day, day in and day out, Jesus gives us what we do not deserve. And to that we say, yes, but I'm not Jesus. So how can I keep forgiving and keep extending grace and keep showing sacrificial love when it's not being done back? How do we do it? Well, we can't do it. So we must day after day after day go to the one who can We can't extend grace and live self-sacrificially out of our own strength. No, we need the grace and power of God, which tells us today that the best thing we can give our marriages is not our first pursuit, not first our pursuit of each other, but first our pursuit of Jesus. The first charge today is not to go and be a great husband or wife. The first charge today is not go and be humble and to self-sacrifice and to be a kind spouse. No, the first call today is to come to Jesus and to worship the Lord and to be filled with the Spirit and the power of God. Because if we're going to be a Spirit-filled husband, if we're going to be a Spirit-filled wife, we need to first go and be filled with the Spirit. We need to come to God and let him fill our hearts with his love and his grace. We must continually gaze upon the unconditional love of God. And as a response, living out of the overflow that God pours out on us when we sit and just bask in his presence and marvel and delight in the gospel, his unconditional love. And as a simple response, may that love and grace and power overflow into our marriages. And when this happens, do you know what happens? We show the world the beauty and the power of Jesus. We show the world the beauty of the gospel. And to that we can say, what a gift. What a gift. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you're so kind to us. God, you've shown us so much grace. God, you've shown us so much love. God, we pray that just our marriages would flourish under the grace and power of God. That we would be a people that week in and week out, day in and day out, sit and just bask in the love of God. And as, a, as, a, as the overflow of our worship of the Lord, that we would live just honoring one another. Living as a self-sacrifice, sacrificing one another. God, we, we know that our marriages point to the gospel. And so we pray that we would just delight in Jesus and the cross. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.